0: hello good evening good day everybody welcome to a new episode of the indian interest where we look at the world from india's perspective and from the perspective of india's national interest thank you for being here today tonight wherever you are so as you know today i'm going to speak about a variety of things including the acquisition of twitter by elon musk which is going to be one of the major topics but other things as well, including geopolitics. So I usually talk about geopolitics here. So why don't we change it up and speak about something else to start off with? So uh, let's talk about something that is uh, that concerns India's internal affairs for a change and something to do with education. So we recently hear that the, uh, that, uh, the government has announced that uh, the NCERT textbooks will be changed to some extent and some chapters or some uh events will be removed and all that. so let's take a look at what it is what is what it's all about so here yeah, this is the thing cbse removes verses by faiz from ncert class 10 political science book uh so it says that uh, several verses of urdu poet faiz ahmed faiz's poem have been removed and so on and uh, Segment on religion, communalism, and politics has been retained. Several images of tech, of some several images from the textbook have been executed, excluded from the curriculum. And there is a political cartoon and posters. I mean, I wonder why there were political cartoons in a textbook and posters. And uh, some NGOs' uh, promotion was there in the textbook, apparently. That's incredible, right? Uh, so, some, uh, some verses of a poem, some poster by some NGO in India, and some cartoon. So, I wonder what cartoons and posters were doing in a textbook. This is clear indoctrination, attempts to indoctrin- indoctrinate children. Let's see what else there, there is to say about this. So, this is a different article from a different website. CBSC removes Faiz's poem... Chapters on Mughals, Islamic Caliphate, from so 2022 to 23 academic session. The changes are part of the rationalization of the syllabus and align with recommendations of whatever NCERT. So it's removing chapters from the non about the non-aligned movement, the Cold War era, the rise of Islamic empires in Afro-Asian territories. Chronicles of Mughal courts, industrial revolution, two poems, and so on and so forth. So, I wonder why chapters about the non aligned movement have been removed. I wonder why that is so. Is it not a part of history? Is it not something that happened? Uh, chapters about the Cold War era have been removed. Is it not relevant to understanding the world, the Cold War era, the rise of Islamic empires in Afro Asian territories? Once again, is it? Are these not events that happened? I mean, if you study all of this, it does add to your understanding of what the world is today. I understand that you should not have us any, any form of glorification of certain political regimes or movements or whatever, but you have to present facts. You cannot exclude entire uh, chapters of human history from textbooks. So it's it, it looks a little strange to me and I'm not quite sure that I agree with all of this, the chronicles of the Mughal courts have been removed. I mean, the so-called Mughal era, which was the Turkic era, the Turkic occupation of India, did happen. It is important that people, students, children learn about what happened. It is one thing to learn about something, it's another thing to glorify and portray our oppressors and invaders as good people. That's a different thing, that should not happen. But we should learn what happened. So. Once again, that, that's, that sort of thing has happened. So some of these things have been completely removed. Uh, yeah, so then, in the, yeah, there are cartoons, six cartoons apparently, six cartoons from political science textbooks uh, have been removed. So that I think is a good step. Why do you need cartoons in a textbook? Political cartoons in a textbook. That clearly is an attempt to uh, shape the political thought process and ideology of students so it looks like this is a mixed bag they're calling it the rationalization of the syllabus well rationalization of the syllabus should not include removing things removing chapters about events that really happened it's important that we learn what really happened in its entirety without uh, and and in textbooks should present everything that happened without passing judgment and without trying to indoctrinate children into believing that so-and-so oppressor or invader was good and the natives were bad. That sort of thing is not good, but we have to learn the facts. If you don't remember, if you don't learn about your past, you will not have a good future. People who forget their past are condemned to keep on repeating it, right? That's the, that's the cliche that goes. So I think it's not, I'm not sure who decides all of this, who, who makes the decisions, who decides what's to be removed, what's to be changed, what's to be added, it looks like the people who are in charge of making these decisions are not really people who understand what education is, and so so it's it's problematic. It's usually bureaucrats who make these knee-jerk uh, changes on uh, on the demands of. I suppose what happens is that the ministry or whatever issues a certain policy framework, and then it is left to the bureaucrats to actually implement these policy changes. And the bureaucrats go about doing it in a very ham-handed manner, as always. So that's what seems to have happened again. And it is uh, kind of disappointing. So I agree that we need to reform the education system. But you need to have top-down big reforms, not these stupid little cosmetic changes. They don't really do anything. We do know for a fact that NCERT is all about brainwashing kids. It's full of lies. It's full of distortions about Indian history. It's full of propaganda. It's full of attempts to brainwash children into believing that invaders were good, occupiers were good, oppressors were good, and the Indian culture is evil and backward and so on and so forth. So that needs to be changed. But it has to be done properly, not in this manner by removing entire periods of history. What's the point of doing that? Children need to learn about what happened to India. The past 1,000 years were what I call the millennium of humiliation for India. The Chinese speak about a century of humiliation. India had a millennium of humiliation. First at the hands of the Turks and then at the hands of the Europeans, which is mainly primarily the British. Right. So it is very important that we learn about the full extent of what our civilization went through. So that is important. And what's never mentioned in this textbook is the number of people they killed, the Turks and the British and the Europeans. If historians were to do a proper analysis and study of the death toll in India at the hands of the Turks, I suspect it would reach at least 500 million over the course of seven centuries. 500 million in seven centuries is less than 100 million per century, which is less than a million per year, which is its is very plausible. Many people will say, what do you mean 500 million? I get these comments all the time. Look at the time period of 7 centuries. Take 500 million, divide it by 700. then Then you get a figure of less than a million per year, which is very plausible in a country that's occupied by barbarians. All right, And we also know that the British were able to kill over 100 million Indians in less than 200 years. That's a recorded fact. Just look at the statistics of the famines. So all of these facts have to be brought to light. They have to be taught to children in black and white, without putting shades of grey in colour. So that needs to happen, but unfortunately it's not happening. It's some stupid idiotic decision makers who are making these silly changes to the textbooks, which don't really uh, have the effect that is desired. The effect that is desired is that people should know the truth about history. That's it. And that's not happening. They're removing portions of history. Why do we need to remove the non-aligned movement? Why? It is something that happened, it was not good for India, it was not in India's national interest, but we should know what sort of leaders this country had in the very recent past. So that children, when they grow up, they don't elect such people in the future. Right? I mean, who was in power when this non-alignment nonsense happened? We all know who it was. It was the incomparable, magnificent Shri Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji. So we need to know that if you elect certain kinds of leaders, there, there are going to be consequences. So why are we removing the chapter on non-alignment? non-alignment? Why? Why are we removing the uh, removing whatever references to Mughal courts or whatever it was? It has to remain, but it has to be presented properly. So that's what I would like to say about this. It's not very good what these people are doing. This has to be handled better. We need education reforms, but not in this manner. These are silly cosmetic reforms that don't really serve the purpose. So we need people with vision. We need people who have the right long-term vision for the country in the education system. People who are in the decision-making levels of the education system. And only then will we get the changes that we need. So Unfortunately, thus far, I am very disappointed with what this government is doing with the education system. Nothing of any sort. In the first term of this government, 2014-2019, to we had the incomparable Mr. Javdekar who was the minister in charge of this education and he boasted that we have not changed a single word in the textbooks wonderful Mr. Javdekar good I mean brilliant achievements, sir you did nothing and now who I don't know who is in charge of the education ministry but clearly they're not doing a good job so disappointed right okay let's move on to a another topic, something uh, more interesting. So let us bring that in. Let me share this piece of news that has happened recently. So here, here, here's what's happened. So the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, Sheikh Hasina, offers the Chittagong port, Chattogram port, to for use by India on the visit of Dr. S. Jayshankar, who is India's foreign minister. So Dr. Jayshankar, who arrived in Bangladesh, on Thursday, on a brief official visit, handed over an invitation to uh, Hasina on PM Narendra Modi's behalf to visit New Delhi and so on. So this is what happened, and Sheikh Hasina offered her country's main seaport, Chittagong port, to India's northeastern states like Assam and Tripura, to enhance connectivity between the two neighbours. So that's all that we know about this. Uh, She told Shankar that the enhanced connectivity was needed for mutual benefit, it would particularly benefit india's northeastern region in using bangladesh's chattogram port if connectivity is increased the indian northeastern states like assam and tripura can have access to the seaport in chattogram uh, the initiative was taken to resume cross border roads between bangladesh and india which were stopped during the 1965 india pakistan war when bangladesh was the eastern wing of pakistan and so on and so forth that's what is uh, that's what's happened about the the Chattogram port so let's understand what this means so let's so let's take a look at the map to understand where all of this is let me share my map with you let's take a look at the map so why is this port being offered what is the importance so this is india the indian subcontinent where is Chattogram it is over here this is Chittagong or Chattogram. This is Eastern Bengal or present day Bangladesh. It's right now Bangladesh as of today. It's been that way since nineteen seventy one. It was earlier part of East Pakistan. And as you know, India's Far East, which is colloquially known as the northeastern part of India, it is kind of to a large extent cut off from the mainland of the country. When Bangladesh, when East Bengal was part of India, like it was for thousands of years, there was no such issue. But today, the only connectivity, land connectivity, is via the very narrow Siliguri corridor, which is about 50 kilometers or so wide, roughly. It is currently part of of West Bengal, of the Indian state of West Bengal so if you want to send goods supplies or anything to the northeast of india the far east of india you uh, india has to do it through the siliguri corridor it's a very congested place and so on it's a, it's a, and the uh, logistics are very not very good it takes a long time and a, it's a very long route let's say you want to send something from kolkata to let's say uh, agartala or imphal or or nagaland it's a very very long route to reach there so in the past, India has requested Bangladesh for a very long time. India has been doing that to give Bangladesh to give India transit access through Bangladeshi territory so that Indian India can um, goods and services and things can reach the northeast of India via Bangladesh. So something like a land route, you know, open a road between, let's say, West Bengal and Tripura, for instance, that's one example, or maybe have some rail connectivity or something or give offer, give access to one of the ports, so Bangladesh in the past has always refused this. Bangladesh has consistently refused to give India that sort of facility. So this is the first time a Bangladeshi leader, Prime Minister, has made this sort of offer. So in the absence of this connectivity, India has been explore has been exploring a multitude of options. One of these options is the uh, it is the Kaladan multimodal transit project. Transit Transport Project. So what is that? Let me share a different image with you so that uh, you get to know what that is. The Kaladan Project, multimodal project. So it is essentially a port in Myanmar, Burma, the Sithway Port in Myanmar, which would be connected via uh, from Kolkata. And then there will be uh, transportation via Burmese territory into the northeastern part of India, the far east of India, uh, Aizal and so on. So that is something that is being worked on for a number of years. I think more than a decade this project has been uh, been worked on. So let's let's take a look at the map again and let me show you where exactly these, these uh, ports and all that are. Here's the map. We know where Kolkata is. And the port of Sitwey is right here, right? It is. It is uh, to the south of Bangladesh, Sitwey port, and it sits on this river called the Kaladan River. Is this the Kaladan River? There are two rivers here, but I maybe it's this one. Okay, so one of these rivers is the Kaladan River. They, I think it's this this river here, the Kaladan River. So what will happen is that you will, India will send goods by sea, from Kolkata, the goods will reach the Sithwe port and then it will, they will be transported up north through the Kaladan River and then there will be a change in the mode. It will become a road trip then, so then from a certain uh, part of the country, they will be dis- the goods will be disembarked from the Kaladan River and they will be sent by road into India. So this year is, is India, Indian Territory, Mizoram, Manipur, Tripura, and so on. So that is a very long convoluted route that we are working on. It has a rail connectivity also, I believe at a certain uh, portion of the transit route and so on. So that is the long convoluted route that India has been working on. and It's going to, I think, be opened in 2023, next year, maybe in a year or two maximum. So that is the situation right now. So today it seems that the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, has offered Chattogram port to India. So that's great. So from Chittagong, if you want to reach Agartala, the distance is about, I don't know, 200 kilometers? 150 kilometers. Wonderful. The distance from Chattogram port to the Indian border, Tripura, is, I would say, 60 or so kilometers. Let's see how far it is. 75 kilometers. And the distance from there to, let's say, Mizoram, is, I would believe, even less. It's about, okay, it's the same, about 85 kilometers. So Chatogram port is in a great location for India. If you can send goods there by, sh- by sea, by ship, then we can transport them quickly into the far east of India, into Tripura, Mizoram, and from there on to Manipur, uh, Nakalan, Meghalaya, and so on. So that would really reduce the time needed to send stuff from Kolkata to the northeast of India and so on. So that's a great offer. But as we know, the devil is always in the details. So, right now we have this headline that the Bangladeshi Prime Minister has offered this port, this their major port to India for use to, to for transporting uh, materials into the far east of India, the northeast of India. So that's the headline. But what are the details? What sort of uh, logistical modalities are involved in that? Have the two countries finalized the agreement of how what uh, how it's going to be done, what sort of rights India has to the, in the port and so on? As of now, we don't have any details. The devil is always in the details. A prime minister can make an offer, but then it's the two sets of bureaucrats or diplomats or officials from the two countries that will sit down together and hammer out an agreement, a deal. And then there will be an official signing of the deal, agreement or whatever. And that's how it's done. So right now there is the offer. It doesn't mean anything anything is finalized yet it's a great initiative i applaud the prime minister of bangladesh for doing this for making the offer but now we have to see what the two sides are able to finalize uh, so so that's something that needs to be seen now there's something else that's interesting when we are when we are talking about bangladesh so let's let's see this so there is this article that has come out like yesterday this is uh, from the website, Foreign Affairs, which is a very major American news portal. It deals with foreign affairs as, as the name tells you. So the story is Bangladesh is quite slide into autocracy. Apparently Bangladesh is not very democratic nowadays. It has become more autocratic, terrible. I don't know, In, the, in it says it's the end of a democratic success story. I wonder what it means i mean they have free and fair elections there in bangladesh and the prime minister has been elected democratically so why so i am sure there's a whole story here that they have concocted and it, this this par- paragraph is quite telling it says that bangladesh's democratic backsliding is precipitous already the government wields increasingly unchecked power the opposition is cowed and fragmented. Oh my goodness. The judiciary is grossly compromised and civil society has withered. What is civil society? What is the definition of civil society? I wonder. If the erosion of its democracy is not stopped, Bangladesh will become a de facto one party authoritarian state. Unfortunately, few forces inside or outside the country seem willing to be able or seem willing or able to do anything to avert disaster so that's the story that's come out from this american portal it's as always it's written by a a brown minion a local bangladeshi who works for the the portal so what these american portals do is that they will employ useful idiots from the target country to write articles on on portals like this and so it looks like you know it's a voice from bangladesh itself it's not an american voice but these people are typically People who live in the U.S. or or are beholden to the U.S. they are on the payrolls, and they receive hefty sums of money for writing all this. Let's let's see some another, another such article. Let's see here, Modi's big mistake: how neutrality on Ukraine weakens India. And guess who is written it? Shashit Tharoor so this is the kind of strategy they use so they are now portraying bangladesh as a nation that's sliding into autocracy and there's the end of this democratic success story over there and civil society apparently is is withering what is civil society and is bangladesh not a sovereign nation who are these guys to pass judgment on what happens in another country in the internal matters of another country so this is what these people do bangladesh now seems to be Becoming closer to India, there is increasing cooperation between India and Bangladesh, especially since the current uh, Prime Minister of Bangladesh, uh, Sheikh Hasina, has been in power. Previously, there was another lady, Khaleda Zia, who who used to be in power, and she she was very vitriolic towards India. She was very uh, she was very strongly anti-India. So it looks like the Americans want Khaleda Zia to return to power. And that's why they're they've begun the process of of portraying uh, the the election of Sheikh Hasina as something that is bad for Bangladesh. Bangladesh is sliding into autocracy, and uh, there is a def- there's going to be sued a de facto one party authoritarian rule in Bangladesh. Well, America is a two party state, which is just one step above a, a one party state. And who who are they to? pass such such judgment. So what you see is that the Americans are not not happy with the direction in which Bangladesh is going. Bangladesh is getting ever every year it's getting closer to India. As you can see, the the Prime Minister has offered their major port to India which will strengthen India and Bangladesh and, and, uh, uh, and the relationship between the two nations. It will be good for everybody. Right? There are issues between India and Bangladesh, no doubt. These are issues that that have been left over since the colonial era, from the time of partition to the time of East Pakistan to the time of 1971 and so on. And as we know, there is this unchecked, ongoing Bangladeshi infiltration into India. So all these issues exist. There is the Rohingya issue also, which is not quite Bangladesh, which is Myanmar, but it's all part of the same thing. So issues remain, but India and Bangladesh are cooperating. This current Bangladeshi government is very positively inclined towards India. It does see the future as as something that uh, will require cooperation. That way, both countries will benefit. And as you can see, the Americans are not very happy about this. So they are now portraying Bangladesh as an increasingly autocratic country. So that's what happens when you want to eventually achieve regime change in the country. You start by using all these articles and and tweets and uh, op-eds, etc. in the media begin to portray the country as something that's not quite democratic, autocratic and so on. So that, if you do it for two, three years, it eventually justifies your future regime change. So by the time the public has already cre- has already formed this idea of the country, that it's an autocratic country and it deserves regime change. So it's okay to, you know, do some sort of regime change operation in the country. So that's the kind of uh, situation that we are seeing. They are also doing the same thing about India. They've been doing it for the past few months, ever since the Ukraine war started. They are portraying India as a country that supports authoritarianism and war and all that, which is incredible coming from the US. So that is something that we need to be aware of. I am sure our our foreign ministry, etc., all the officials, the leaders are aware of what's happening, but this is something that we also need to be aware of. So right now, there is this hit job going on over Bangladesh. It looks like they want... Eventually, Khalidazia, the ghastly Khalidazia to return to power. My God, imagine that. Anyway, so that's about Bangladesh. Now let's talk about another another neighbor of ours. Since we are talking about Bangladesh, let's also talk about Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka. So what's happening in Sri Lanka? We know that there's this terrible economic crisis the country is going through. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, I believe. So, here's what's happening. This is an article from yesterday. Sri Lankan President Gotabaya Rajapaksa agrees to remove his brother Mahinda Rajapaksa as prime minister. So, that is what's happening. So, the family, Rajapaksa family, is somehow trying to remain in power. And uh, as we have discussed in a previous episode, it is this family that has totally destroyed and ruined the economy of Sri Lanka. Why are all these populist measures and uh, very bad economics. So, Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, on Friday agreed to replace his older brother as Prime Minister in a proposed interim government to solve a political crisis caused by the country's worst economic crisis. A president Rajapaksa agreed that a national council will be appointed to name a new Prime Minister and cabinet composed of all parties in Parliament. And so on. So that's what's happening. So they are worried about the political crisis. The political crisis means that the Rajapaksa family is in crisis and they want to somehow stay in power. That is the crisis they are facing. So they are trying their best to solve a political crisis, whereas the real crisis that they need to solve is the economic crisis. And the country always has to be above a certain family. But this is what we are seeing right now. So the Rajapaksas, so there's always going to be some sibling rivalries in a political family and whoever has the most power as of today will try to retain that power at the expense of the other siblings so that's the kind of situation you see in political families not only in sri lanka but in other parts of the world as well maybe closer to home if you can think of such uh such situations historically so that's what we are that, that's what we are seeing the crisis is never nowhere near to be solved they are going to have to borrow money from other countries maybe from india from china india is trying to help but let's see how that goes and maybe from the imf the world bank or something if the imf and, if the imf and world bank get involved then sri lanka is going to have to sell its soul in exchange for money maybe they are used to doing that maybe the Rajapak, rajapaksa are used to do, used to doing that so that's where we are now let's look at this other interesting piece of news uh Nearly 90% of the people of Sri Lanka want the Rajapaksa family to leave politics, says a poll. Hmm. As many as uh, these many percent of Sri Lankans believe that the entire Rajapaksa family should leave Sri Lankan family, uh, Sri Lankan politics, with 87.3% supporting the demand that President Gotabaya Rajapaksa should resign. So the people of Sri Lanka know that this family has ruined the country. But Unfortunately, there's nothing the people of Sri Lanka can do about it. They would like the family to leave politics, but the family has a stranglehold in power and they are trying to solve the political crisis, which means that they don't want to give up power. They want to remain in power. Gotabaya Rajapaksa should remain the president. Maybe for now, Mahinda Rajapaksa can be removed from the post of prime minister. And eventually, once the money comes in from whatever source, then they can go back to business as usual. So that is what you see when you have a country that's essentially in the pocket of an entire family so that is the sri lankan crisis it still continues there is no uh, sign of its it being resolved any time in the in the coming days so that's about sri lanka just thought that i would take a look at what's happening there now let's take a look at something maybe more interesting so let's take a look at the recent summit between the us and india The fourth annual U.S.-India 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue, which means that the Indian foreign minister and the Indian defense minister meet their respective counterparts from the U.S. 2 plus 2 ministerial dialogue. So this is something that happened very recently. And this is the text of the statement that was released by the governments, by the two governments. Uh, on on the occasion of this 4th annual US 2 plus 2 Ministerial Dialogue in 2022. And this is the entire text. It's a very long, lengthy text. Yeah, So let's just take a look briefly at what it is about. Anthony Blinken and uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin III welcomed Mr. Rajnath Singh and Dr. Jay Shankar on April 11. 11, And and this thing was preceded by a virtual meeting between Prime Minister Modi and President Biden. Right. And India are natural and trusted partners celebrating 75 years of diplomatic relations and so on and so forth. Very nice words. So they spoke about they discussed global partnership and Indo-Pacific cooperation. Very interesting, right? That is something you expect them to discuss. Then there was discussions about mutual prosperity, innovation, and resilient supply chains. Very nice. Climate, environment, and clean energy, very important, I'm sure. Science, technology, cybersecurity, and space. Yes, good. Global health. <laughs> Interesting that they discussed global health. Defense and security is the main thing that they should have discussed, and they did. Counterterrorism and counter narcotics. Okay, why not throw that into the mix as well? Education and people-to-people ties. Very nice. Very nice. Very good. So this is the whole text of the that was released by the two countries. It's a joint release, right? Now let's look at Ukraine. Did they discuss Ukraine? So this over here, what you see, is just an advisory. It is not the actual text that was released, the actual text is here. So there's only one reference to the word Ukraine in the entire text, right? In the entire text, in the entire uh, release in the article, only one reference to Ukraine. Isn't that interesting? So it looks like India and the US have agreed to not discuss Ukraine too much because there are significant differences there. We know what the Americans would want India to do. They would like India to dissociate itself from Russia and condemn the Russian invasion in Ukraine and support the US narrative globally. That's what they would like us to do. But India is not agreeing to that. And that's why there was only one reference to Ukraine in the entire several thousand word uh, release the entire text that was released by the two countries the statement that is very interesting almost no references to ukraine right now uh, so so what we see is that uh, dr s Shankar has become in the past few days especially since the ukraine conflict began he has become very visible and he has he has become very influential in global geopolitics as as we speak right now in the past two, three months, there has been a long procession of foreign official visits and unofficial visits by heads of state, by world leaders, by diplomats, by foreign ministers, by by, by finance ministers, and so on and so forth, from a variety of countries from all over the world to India. So India, in the past two, three months, has become, in a way one of the major centers of global diplomacy and geopolitics. And at the center of all of this is Dr. S. Shankar. He is in the midst of all of this. So, he has become very influential and it's a good thing. So, let's take a look at the history of Dr. Jay- Jayashankar. And to do that, we can take a look at an, at an old article from 2019 about, uh, about his appointment as the Foreign Minister of India. So it says what S. J. Shankar brings to the Minister of, Ex- of the External Affairs table. Foreign Secretary, Former Foreign Secretary S. J. Shankar's new role as External Affairs Minister is one of the brightest developments, Just not just for the government, but for India as well. What sets him apart from earlier career diplomats is that the trust and the confidence of Prime Minister Modi he enjoyed even before he joined the latter's cabinet. uh, I don't need this. So what does a professional diplomat like him bring to the external affairs table of GOI? An incisive mind to dissect and understand the complexities of the issue at hand. Dispassionate analysis, patience, perseverance for conducting tough negotiations while focusing on the broader national interest. It's an open secret that Mr. Modi wants to use foreign policy as a productive means to fulfill his domestic agenda of transforming India from a developing country to to a developed one. Dr. Jashankar is expected to help him realize this aim. So, as our former man in Washington, he can help steady relations with the US. Uh, the tightening of the H-1B visa and all those issues that we have. He's equally at home with China, where he is perceived as a promoter of close Indo-China relations. The idea of the Wuhan informal summit between Modi and Xi did not emanate from Beijing. It came from New Delhi from from Dr. J. Shankar, and so on, trade deficit, long-standing border issue with China and so on and so forth. So that is the track record of Dr. S. J. Shankar. Let's take a deeper look at his track record. What are his achievements? And up there, let's look here. So he was the foreign secretary of January 2015 to January 2018, which means he was the uh, top diplomat of India. He joined the IFS in 1977. He has a diplomatic career of 38 years. He served in different capacities in India and abroad. High Commissioner to Singapore, Ambassador to the Czech Republic, Ambassador to China, Ambassador to the US. He played a key role in negotiating the Indo-US civilian nuclear agreement in the, in the 2000s. And now he is a Cabinet Minister in the, in the Second Modi Ministry. He has been the Minister of External Affairs since 2019 and so on. So he has a very, very uh, long and storied diplomatic career and he is very influential uh, as of today. So that is the uh, role that Mr. Jaishankar, Dr. Jaishankar has played in Indian diplomacy and geopolitics in the past. And what sets him apart is that he most likely is the most influential Indian Foreign Minister that we have had thus far. From a global impact perspective, he is trusted by Prime Minister Modi. So if we look at the Modi government, the first uh, term of Mr. Modi, we had a different person as the Foreign Minister of India, uh, the late Madam Sushma Swarajji. So so at that time, unfortunately, Mr. Modi had to perform the role of the Foreign Minister. maybe uh, mrs swaraj was a political appointment she clearly did not did not have any background in, in international relations or geopolitics uh, not to criticize the lady uh, she she was by all accounts a great very wonderful human being and a great politician very good politician but i would say that she was not the best foreign minister india has ever had okay let's put it that way so mr modi was essentially handling the foreign ministry at the time. He went all around the world, so many foreign visits, he was handling all the diplomacy. Now we don't see Mr. Modi doing that at all. It is Dr. Jayashankar who is handling geopolitics, international affairs, diplomacy, all of that. So that is a great change. It's a very welcome change. And Dr. Jayashankar has brought with him a certain worldview, a very interesting worldview, what you could call the jayashankar doctrine of how to engage with the world especially with the western world so that is something that's very interesting and what are the salient points of the jayashankar doctrine so it's it's essentially a framework of india us or india west relations how does india approach its relationship with the west there has to be a proper framework for doing that and that is what dr jayashankar has Elaborated upon. That's what he has worked on. That's what he has created, and he has spoken about it. Uh, there, the, there was this uh, very famous talk that he gave at the Atlantic Council in 2019. That kind of outlines his framework, his doctrine of uh, of India-West relations. So the first part, the first uh, part of this worldview is the recognition. So I speak about the millennium of humiliation, right? India has undergone a millennium of humiliation at the hands of external oppressors, invaders, which includes the Turks and the Europeans. So Dr. Jaishankar has focused, narrowed down on not the entire millennium of humiliation, he has narrowed down on two centuries of India's national humiliation at the hands of the West, essentially at the hands of the UK, at the hands of Britain. So that is the first very important thing that he has spoken about multiple times. Two centuries of national humiliation at the hands of the West. And the extraction, the plunder of some 45 or more trillion dollars worth of wealth out of India, which was transferred to the West and which built what the West is today. The entire foundation of the West's wealth comes from the plunder from India. 45 trillion dollars at least worth of plunder from India. So two centuries of national humiliation, the plunder of 45 trillion plus dollars of wealth from India. And the third thing is that when we speak about the West, the US is definitely a part of the West. When we talk about the West today, it's essentially the US. And some would argue that is the it's the British who plundered the wealth from India. What does it have to do with the with the U.S. Right? That's the kind of distinction Western commentators try to make, and that's the kind of criticism they offer about what Dr. S. John Shankar has been saying. Well, here's the truth. Here's the deal, my friends. The U.S. is the successor state of the of the British Empire. The British and the U.S. are essentially the same entity. The English speaking world. The U.S. was created by. British citizens and much of the wealth that the that the British extracted out of India made its way into the US and it helped build the US. Just one example that I'll offer right now. You can look up other examples as well. One example, look at the history of Yale University. Go to your favorite search engine and look at the history of Yale University and the founder of Yale University, Eliyahu, Yale. It was founded as Yale College, eventually it became Yale University. But what was the source of the wealth that this guy possessed? Eliyahu Yale. That's just one example. So the US is definitely, either directly or indirectly, complicit in the two centuries of national humiliation that India underwent. The US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, the Anglosphere are essentially just one entity. The center of power used to be in London, now it's in Washington. It's the same entity, right? So there is an implicit recognition of this in Dr. Jayashankar's explanation of his framework of India-West relations, right? So two centuries of national humiliation, 45 trillion plus dollars of wealth extracted out of India. The US is definitely a part of the West And India is a part of the East. So the US shares responsibility for the two centuries of national humiliation that India experienced at the hands of the British Empire. That is something Dr. Jashankar makes very clear in a variety of ways. What's also clear in the worldview of Dr. Jashankar is that Russia and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, were not part of the West and they are not today part of the West. Like India, Russia is part of the East. It is outside any responsibility for India's two centuries of national humiliation. Russia is not part of the West. We don't blame Russia in any way whatsoever for what the West did to India. Russia was not part of that. That's very important. So the West is essentially represented by the United States. Who else is part of the West today? The European Union, NATO, the Five Eyes conglomerate, US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And even Japan and South Korea are part of the West because they are essentially US colonies, which I have explained many times in the past. So even Japan and South Korea are part of the West. So what this tells you is that the West is not a geographic designation. The West is a political or geopolitical concept that emerged out of the Cold War. That's what the West is. The EU, NATO, Western European countries, all of the five-eyes nations that are the, the Anglosphere, even Japan, even South Korea, all of this is the West. It's a geopolitical concept. It's not a regional or geographic designation. Now, here's the most important thing. Today, in the 21st century, the West both supports and suppresses India. right? This is something that is part of the Jayshankar doctrine or worldview. So the objective of the West, which means the US. When you say West, you essentially mean the US. The objective is that India should neither become too strong nor too weak. India should stay somewhere in between. India should be useful enough to the West, in its geopolitical games to further the national interests of the US and the geopolitical games and ambitions of the US, but India should not become too strong as to become a challenger someday in the future. So the US or the West supports India in certain ways, but suppresses India also in a variety of ways. This is there is a clear recognition of this fact in the Jayshankar worldview or the Jayshankar doctrine, which is why India is today. Pursuing a policy, a geopolitical policy of strategic autonomy, which is not non alignment. Strategic autonomy essentially means multi alignment, multipolarity, a multipolar engagement with the world. We don't want a bipolar world. And we are not going to be non aligned. We are going to align with everybody and anybody who will help us achieve our national interest. And we're going to uh, engage with these various partners in a mutually respectful and beneficial manner. So that is what we mean by strategic autonomy. So there's going to be a full range of cooperation between India and the US or India and the West on aspects of economic development, etc. Non-geopolitical aspects. But when it comes to geopolitical aspects and endeavors, which are things that have to do with national security, international security and strategic geopolitical matters, India is going to remain strategically autonomous. India is not going to toe the line of the US. So there's going to be a more circumscribed relationship with the West when it comes to geopolitics. India is always going to put its self-interest first, its national interest first. India's national interest is going to be given a higher priority over the so-called shared values that the U.S. always likes to talk about. The U.S. says India and the U.S. have shared values. We are great democracies, blah, 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 blah. Dr. Jashankar is very clear about the fact that India will put its national interest and self-interest above any so-called shared values. And India is going to be completely autonomous, independent in its strategic choices and its geopolitical choices, in what to do strategically and geopolitically. And what we are seeing now, especially in the last two, three months, is the visible increasing resistance to Western interference in the internal matters of India. So I spoke about this 2 plus 2 dialogue at the end of which the US Foreign Secretary, Mr. Blinken, uh, expressed uh, concern about the so-called human rights situation in India. And Dr. Jai Shankar retorted uh, in, in, in his own way, that india is also concerned about the human rights situation in the us so we're not going to take this nonsense lying down anymore so this is what we are seeing today india is increasingly increasingly assertive india is no longer taking the nonsense that it used to swallow all these decades from the us and there is an there is this realization that india's position is getting better the us is a nation that's unfortunately in decline the U.S. of the 2020s is very similar to the, to the U.K. of the 1920s and 1930s. So after the end of the first European tribal war, which they called World War One, which was a European tribal war, at the end of Europe's first tribal war, the U.K. was essentially in decline. It, was no, it, it still called itself with the, the British Empire or whatever, but it was already in decline. So that's what we are seeing in the U.S. today. It's a nation that's slowly in decline. It's a superpower. It's an empire, but it is declining. And other powers are rising. We are seeing a multipolar world emerge. They hope to see a bipolar world, but that's not really happening right now. As long as India is there, as long as Russia is there, you will not have a bipolar world. So India knows that the US needs India to contain China. India knows that the US will be happy to use India as an expendable, disposable partner. When the Chinese threat is seen off, they will want to dispose of India as well. So all of this awareness is there. And India knows that India is central to the US policy of trying to contain China in the Indo-Pacific sphere. So that's why we see this. And, and of course, India India's economy is rising. India's overall comprehensive national power is increasing, which is why we are seeing this increased assertiveness and confidence from India. So it is something that is very good in my opinion it needs to continue. And at the center of all of this is Dr. S. Jayashankar. I have never seen a better foreign minister of India. That is my personal opinion, that he is the best foreign minister India has ever produced thus far, based on what he is doing, what he has been doing since 2019. And the directions in which he is steering India globally, geopolitically, strategically, excellent work, could not be happier to see somebody like Dr. Jayashankar in this position. Uh, of the foreign minister. Usually, the foreign minister is a political appointment. In the past, it's always some politician who is appointed as the foreign minister and also defense minister. Right? So for the first time, I have seen somebody who is a proper career diplomat, who understands geopolitics, who has been placed, who has been appointed the foreign minister of India. Incredible. Great to see this. And this, this needs to go on. So, So yeah, that is the Jayashankar worldview and Jayashankar doctrine, which is taking India in the right direction. Excellent. So now Dr. Jayashankar, the the other thing, I forgot to say this, Uh, Dr. Jayashankar has in the past few days been referring to India as a civilizational state. It's the first time ever that an Indian diplomat, foreign minister or leader has referred to India as a civilizational state in public and in the uh, on on the global stage. It's never happened before. so what Dr. Jashankar is saying essentially is that India is not an artificial made up artificially constructed nation like all the various European nations and so on. Let me show you what an artificially constructed nation looks like. shall I show you what it what it looks like? Let me share the map just a second so all of the nations that we have in the world today are Westphalian nation states. These are all artificially created nations, more or less. Uh, some of these nations, especially in the East, are linguistic and cultural nations. But if you look at Africa, you see all these straight lines on the map that have been arbitrary, arbitrarily drawn by European powers and Western powers. Straight lines on the map. They disregard cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries and they, they essentially divide communities and cultures and ethnicities into two. And that's, that's why we have so much strife in Africa today because these are artificially created nations that do not recognize, that are not drawn along cultural, ethnic or linguistic lines. So that's why you have so much strife in Africa. And the Europeans have done this deliberately in order to keep on exploiting Africa long after the so-called era of colonization is supposedly over. So these are artificial nation states that the Europeans, the Westerners, have drawn. And the same you will see in a different way in in Latin America as well. So these are all colonial states. All of these countries are either Spanish-speaking or Portuguese-speaking. Native cultures have been destroyed. The native people are still oppressed. They're still marginalized. So the same thing happens there. These are all artificial, artificially cobbled-up nation states. And so the same goes for North America, the same goes for Africa, for much of Europe. But India, as what Dr. Dr. Jashankar says, is not a Westphalian nation state, it's a civilization state. Which means that we are not like you. We are much greater than you. We are much older than you. And we have our own way of doing things. That's what Dr. Jashankar has been emphasizing. Which is great. I'm very happy to see an Indian foreign minister for the first time ever state this. That we are not like the the West. We are a civilization state. You guys are just Westphalian nation states. You are Essentially, in a way, lower in the civilizational ladder than India. Much lower than India. The West is not a civilization. They keep on talking about Western civilization. What civilization? Do you even know the definition of civilization? Maybe I will define it in a later episode. What civilization means. But the West is not a civilization. The West is an empire. Held together by force. India... Is a civilization, so we are different. So, since we are talking about civilizations, it is, I would say, time to look a little deeper into into how India has been constructed. So, we talk about civilization, and as you, as you all know, I have I have criticized the Indian Constitution multiple times. It's it's time that in the in the coming years we should take a fresh look at the Indian civilization. So here is uh, what the constitution of India is like, right? So let's, I have always said that the Indian constitution is a borrowed constitution. It is a patchwork of ideas taken from other countries, from the West. None of it is Indian in nature. So let's take a look at this. What are the sources and what are the features borrowed? The Government of India Act, 1935. It is essentially the, the... the rock on which, the foundation on which the Indian constitution was created, the Indian constitution is nothing but a continuation of the 1935 Government of India Act which was passed by the British. That's what the Indian constitution is. It defines India in the in, in European terms. So the federal scheme, the office of governor, the judiciary, the public service commissions, emergency provisions and administrative, de, administrative details come from the Government of India Act 1935. The parliamentary government, rule of law, legislative procedure, single citizenship, cabinet system, so on and so forth, comes from the British Constitution. Lots from the U.S. Constitution, lots from the Irish Constitution. Nomination of members to the Rajya Sabha, the method of election of the President, directive principles of state policy, uh, Canadian Constitution, federation with a strong center, vesting of residuary powers in the center, appointment of state governors by the center so on, Uh, the Australian constitution, concurrent list, freedom of trade, blah, 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 joint sitting of two houses of parliament. From the Weimar constitution of Germany, suspension of fundamental rights during the emergency. From the USSR constitution, fundamental duties and the idea of justice, social, economic, and political in the preamble. From the French constitution, republic and the ideals of liberté, égalité, fraternité in the preamble of the constitution. From South Africa, Procedure for amendment of the constitution and election of members of Sabha from the Japanese constitution that was written by the Americans. Procedure established by law. As you can see, the Indian constitution is a patchwork of western foreign ideas. There is absolutely nothing that is Indian in it. There is nothing Indian about the Indian constitution. It was created by a bunch of people who did not represent the aspirations and the will of the people of India. It was a more or less unelected body. Many of them, of the members of the Constituent assembly were nominated by the princely states which were British puppets and the others were elected in one of the elections that was held under foreign occupation of India. And those elections were only representative of less than 13% of the eligible population of India at the time. And they were held under foreign rule, which means that election is null and void. It is, extra constitu- it is undemocratic. So the constituent assembly did not represent the people of India. Secondly, after they came up with this constitution, the constitution was never ratified by the people of India. In a democracy, if a bunch of people create a constitution, that constitution has to be made public to the people and the people should be given the chance to vote yes or no for the constitution. Do you accept it or do you reject it? That election, that vote was never held. It's called a referendum. And yeah, you will say that the Indian constitution referendums are not allowed. But we are talking about the framing of the constitution, at which time there was no constitution in force. So there should have been a referendum And the Indian people should have been given the chance to accept or reject the constitution, which was never done. So there is nothing Indian about the Indian constitution. And there is nothing democratic about the Indian constitution. This is something that India, as a civilizational state, will need to address in the coming years. We need a constitution for sure. It has to be a constitution that represents the people of India, the civilization of India. It should be rooted in civilizational values not in foreign values and foreign mo- morality. It should not be drafted by people who represent foreign powers. So this entire business is a fraud. The, they have pulled this wool over the eyes of the Indian people. We the people, Yeah, it's not we the people, it's we the British puppets who created the constitution. So This is something that will need to be looked into at an appropriate time in the future. So yeah that's that's something that needs to happen so with that said let us now let us now come to the major issue which is what's happening in social media so as we all know elon musk the richest person in the world has acquired twitter which is uh, something that has caused a lot of ripples in in society in social media in his country of uh, of citizenship the us and so on so let's take a look at the timeline of what's happened the timeline of the acquisition of Twitter let's let's start there. So this article here is a reasonably uh, accurate it offers a reasonably accurate timeline of the uh, Elon Musk Twitter saga like they say it. So he tweeted that he's giving serious thought to the thought to building his own social media platform so that's he Elon Musk uses Twitter as a place to think out aloud sometimes. So he tweeted that he was giving serious thought to building his own social media platform. Uh, he was thinking about building the next Twitter. Then later, it emerged that he bought a 9.2 share, 9.2% share, 9.2 share of Twitter on the 4th of April. Today is April 30, very recently. Uh, then he was uh, appointed to the Twitter board. So that was announced by Parag Agarwal, the Indian origin CEO of Twitter, who is currently still the CEO of Twitter. Then on April 10, so on April 5th, this announcement was made. On April 10, Elon Musk said that he will not be joining the board of Twitter. Uh, And over the same weekend, Elon Musk wondered on Twitter if Twitter was dying, citing low frequency of tweets from some of the most popular personalities on Twitter. Uh, then somebody sued Elon Musk for not disclosing his investment in Twitter and on April 14, Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter the entire company for $43 billion which is essentially an attempt at a hostile takeover of the country of the the company, not country company. Well, this guy essentially is in a position to buy out countries if he wants, so yeah (laughs) Uh, then he did an interview, apparently, at TED. Then on April 15, the next day, the Twitter board turned towards the poison pill defense. That, that's something that everybody anticipated. Then Elon Musk broke down how he would fund Twitter for his $43 billion bid. On April 25, Twitter said it would it was close to a deal. On April 25, again, they accepted the acquisition offer at forty-four billion dollars, and it seems that this Twitter deal includes a forty-four, a one dollar, one billion dollar termination fee on both sides, and Twitter then locked down its source code to prevent unauthorized changes from its highly leftist, liberal workforce. So this was done to prevent employees from going rogue and sabotaging the platform after Elon Musk purchased the company. So that's what happened. So that is where we are right now. So um, that is the situation. The deal includes a $1 billion termination fee on both sides. Uh, So that's one of the details of the thing. And the closing time, time frame is around September or October. So the deal could still be terminated if it doesn't close properly by October 24, 2022. So it's not yet finalized 100%. The final date is october twenty four 2022 and there could be a there is a provision to extend the termination date for an additional six months or uh, based on various conditions. So that is the story, the saga of the Elon Musk uh, Twitter acquisition, right? Uh, so that's where we are. Now, what are the intentions of Elon Musk? Why did he acquire Twitter? So he has been tweeting about what he intends to do about with Twitter. He says that he is a free speech absolutist. And he has been tweeting about what he thinks should be done. So he says that Twitter DMs should have end-to-end encryption like Signal, so that no one can spy on or hack your messages. So until now, I am sure that Twitter admins can read your DMs if you are a Twitter user. So that's one thing he has said. He has said that for Twitter to deserve political public trust, it must be politically neutral, which effectively means upsetting the far right and the far left equally. He tweeted this meme, which is what Vijaya Gade, who is one of the Twitter employees, or she's a lawyer associated with with Twitter. So there was this this, uh, Joe Rogan podcast in which uh, Twitter's founder, Jack Dorsey, had gone. And Joe Rogan was strongly criticized by his viewers for being too soft on jack dorsey because of that backlash joe rogan invited jack dorsey again for a second round of the podcast and jack dorsey turned up for the podcast with this lady with him so she was she is a lawyer who works with twitter and apparently she was there to ensure that he did not does not say the wrong things so essentially this lady vijaya gade who is of indian origin she was there to act as Jack Dorsey's minder. A minder is somebody who makes sure that you behave properly and say the right things and don't say the wrong things. So that's what her role was. was. And with, with uh, this guy, Joru Ugan, there was this person whose name I don't remember right now, and he accused, he gave examples of Twitter's left-wing bias. To this lady and she, she always kept saying that we have to take the context into consideration and uh, the response typically was that twitter's interpretation of the context is based is affected by their left-wing bias and she then would say i would need to see an example of that and he would give, give another example and the whole cycle would continue so that's the kind of role she played in the podcast she tried to gaslight the whole world Bijaya Gade. So essentially what seems to have happened is that this guy, Jack Dorsey, he had no left-wing or right-wing inclinations. He was just another Silicon Valley guy who was trying to build a company and become rich in the process. He struggled with Twitter for a very long time. Twitter was not doing well for a very long time in the early 2010s and so on. It was founded, I think, in 2006, 7, something somewhere there, look it up. And it was a small platform for a very long time. But eventually what happened is that Celebrities started coming on the platform, world leaders made Twitter their official uh, place from which they could communicate with citizens, and then it became big. So it became an important geopolitical tool in the US arsenal. And that's where it looks like Jack Dorsey lost control of Twitter, and all these people, they came into the thing, and they took it into a certain political direction. So it looks like Jack Dorsey lost control of Twitter a long time ago. But he's still the founder, and that's why he was still the public face of Twitter, right? So this is an illustration of that. It is essentially this lady who was representing Twitter, and Jack Dorsey was just to make up the numbers. That's what it looked like, if you you see the podcast, at the right places. Now, then Elon Musk has issued a clarification of what he means by free speech. By free speech, I simply mean that which matches the law. I am against censorship that goes far beyond the law. Maybe a little beyond the law is okay, but not far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they will ask the government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. So now he is saying that free speech is what matches the law. So I'm not sure if he's talking about US law or does it mean that he's talking about the law in various countries, which means that Twitter would have different policies depending on where it is being used, which means that US law will not apply in France and French law will not apply in India. So in France, Twitter the functioning of Twitter will be uh, governed by French law. In India, the the functioning of Twitter should be governed by Indian law. Is that what he means? Or does he mean that everywhere in the world, it should match American law? So that's not quite clear from this tweet, but this is an interesting evolution of his stance. Earlier, he was saying that he's a free speech absolutist. Now he's trying to add some nuance to that statement. Then uh, this is, uh, it's not all chronological. This is from 27 April, this is from 25 April. He over here, he said that, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Good, good to know that. And April 22, before the thing was announced, he said that if we Twitter beats, beats succeeds, we will defeat the spam bots or die trying. And we will authenticate all real humans. That's interesting because authentication is, is one of the <laughs> interesting thing about things about Twitter. There are lots of real humans on Twitter. There are lots of bots as well, but it, uh, authentication is something that Twitter has turned into a status symbol. So they will not authenticate everybody. They have something something called notability guidelines or whatever the hell it is. You will see some people with 500 followers who have a blue check mark, and you will see people with hundreds of thousands of followers who don't have a blue check mark, which is ridiculous, which means that there is some, it's not consistent application of the rules. They have turned the blue check mark in something of a privilege, into something of a status symbol and they will give it to people whom they like and they will not give it to people they don't like. That seems to be the situation with Twitter. So Elon Musk essentially is saying that he is going to authenticate all real human beings. That's uh, the statement he has made. These are the things that Elon Musk has been talking about and maybe that's the direction in which he wants to take it. Now there has been a lot of criticism of Elon Musk and his intentions in uh, in the American media. Let's take a look at that also since we are talking about this to understand the proper context in about what's happening. For instance, this is an article from Futurism which says, critics point out that Elon Musk actually kind of hates free speech. It's an inconvenient truth. And they have given uh, examples of what these critics, so-called critics are saying. Uh, his view of free speech is apparently simplistic. That's what this thing says. And it is idealistic. He's too idealistic about free speech. Reality is far messier than that and so on. And uh, he has a track record of, uh, his company Tesla apparently has a track record of keeping employees silent. Workers must sign non-disclosure agreements um, and so on and so forth. He has blocked some people apparently on Twitter, which is his right, right? See, so, so that's the kind of thing they're saying about him. And what else, Uh, Musk wants free speech on Twitter after spending years silencing critics. So that's another criticism they are offering towards him. So what you are seeing from the U.S. establishment, see the U.S. media represents the U.S. establishment, right? So the U.S. establishment is kind of uh, trying to steer public direction in a direction that is critical of, of Elon Musk. So that's also interesting to note. Right. So it looks like the establishment is not quite not quite aligned with what Elon Musk wants to do. And also what we find is that uh we share this. Where are we? The European Union has now issued a warning to Elon Musk over Twitter moderation plans. So until this company, as long as this company was not run by Elon Musk, they were happy with it. Now that Elon Musk has taken over, they have issued a warning to him. They are saying, Elon, there are rules. There are rules, apparently. So the EU, of course, as we know, my dear friends, is is one of the arms of the US superpower, of the US empire, essentially. The major power in in Europe is not the EU, it's not Germany, it's not France, it's not the UK, it is the US. So when the EU speaks, it's essentially the US speaking. So it's a warning to Elon Musk about... uh, that there are rules. I mean, isn't Twitter supposed to be a private company? That's what they've been saying all, all along, that it's a private company and they're going to have their own rules. But now apparently there are rules to what Twitter can do. So that's what's happening. So what should Elon Musk do and what will he be able to achieve with Twitter? So when you take over a company, when you what he has done, he has bought the entire company. So it's no longer a public company. Once the this entire thing is finalized, it's not going to be a publicly listed company its shares will no longer be available on the stock market. It will be entirely owned by one person, Elon Musk, which means that he has the right to do whatever he wants with the company. Now, the thing is, he wants to change the culture of the company. He wants to transform Twitter Twitter completely. He wants to make it accountable, transparent. Uh, He wants to make the algorithms public and so on. Will he be able to do this? Twitter is a big company. It has, I suppose, I assume thousands of companies. It has a whole division in India, which is run by its Indian employees, and over the past 15 or so years, they have hired ba- employees based on a certain political leanings. So essentially, it would not be incorrect to say that the entire Twitter workforce is woke. It is left leaning. Now how do you take Twitter in the opposite direction and make it transparent and not whatever it is right now, when you have, when the entire workforce is opposed to what you are trying to do. Is it, It's not easy to change the culture of a company. It's almost impossible to change the culture of the company without firing the people who, who have created the culture. So either he will have to fire everybody and bring in good replacements, capable replacements quickly, Or this will be a long drawn-out struggle and a long drawn-out battle for every single small change that he wants to make. Two options. Either nuke the entire company, which means replace everybody very fast, as fast as possible, which could lead to problems, which could again lead to problems. Or take the long, slow way of doing things. So it's either revolution or reforms. Revolutions are destructive. They could destroy the, the entire platform. In a variety of ways. Reforms are slow, but then reforms don't always succeed. So that is the dilemma that Elon Musk faces today. Uh, so what would be interesting is we should maybe he should, maybe he could help people understand how their communications were manipulated, who was shadow banned, who was targeted by the bots. In what ways were, was the algorithm limiting the reach of some people by shadow banning people? or or manipulating what you are able to see, what you're not not able to see, what kind of trends were allowed to to trend, and what sort of hashtags were not allowed to trend. Who took those decisions? These things are, that's something that maybe Elon Musk should reveal if he is really serious about free speech and all that. And what does it mean for India? We know that in India, Twitter has banned a number of people permanently Twitter has shadow banned a lot of people based on their political leanings. Twitter has even forced certain ministers of the Indian government to delete tweets. I can think of an instance in which the minister, the, the member of parliament, Paresh Rawal, the, the entertainer, the actor, he was forced to delete a tweet until the time, until he deleted the tweet, his account was locked out. So Twitter has been doing this, and they have always been taking a certain political side in India. It's a very biased platform. There's a lot of censorship when it comes to India and other places as well. So is that going to change now that Elon Musk has taken over? I doubt it very much. In the next few weeks, until October, until he takes over properly, I don't think anything will change. The Indian employees of Twitter are all all politically of a certain inclination. We know that. We know that, uh, I don't remember the names, but there were certain very problematic individuals who were running Twitter in India a few years ago and maybe that uh, the situation still continues so will they replace their India staff or will they continue the same staff in which way the same policies the policies will be hard to change so that's the dilemma that Elon Musk faces will he does he actually intend to transform the company completely or does he just want to make it more fair more balanced does he want to add new features to take it in a different direction we still don't quite know I think as of now, nothing's going to change in the next few weeks or months. Maybe by the end of the year, we may we may start seeing some changes. The edit button is not a big deal. That's not a huge change. It's just a cosmetic minor change. You can do it with a few couple of lines of code, essentially. So that is not a big change. The, the big change one would hope to see is the is the is to remove censorship and remove all the sneaky shadow bans and uh, the political decisions they are making of of banning people. They even banned a sitting US president. Can you believe it? That's what they did. So that tells you that something deeper that's happening in Twitter. It's not really Jack Dorsey who is in power and will Elon Musk be in power now that he has taken over the company? Maybe not. And once again we know that Elon Musk is deeply uh, he works with the U.S. government. He works with the military-industrial complex. He launches secret military satellites. Uh, The capabilities that SpaceX have developed are a very important geostrategic advantage that the U.S. has. And, of course, there will be certain things that... uh, certain ways in which he will be connected to the U.S. government and the military-industrial complex. So what... He has created for himself the position that he has reached. It makes him a very important geopolitical player globally, whether he knows it or not, whether he likes it or not. He's a very major tool in the hands of the US, of the the US government. So I am not quite sure if he can really change things as much as he wants to change. Because Twitter is a very major and very important geopolitical tool that the US has today. Social media, big data, all of these platforms, like you know them all, the big, big data platforms. They are a massive advantage. They represent a massive advantage for the US geopolitically in the, uh, in the global sphere. So I'm not sure that even if Elon Musk wants to change the company radically, he will be able to or he will be allowed to, there will be some changes. It will be better overall for people, a better experience. Maybe people won't get banned so easily. Maybe people will no longer be shadow banned. Maybe there'll be some transparency. But Twitter, I believe, will still remain a major tool, geopolitical tool for the US for shaping opinions, for for quickly changing the mood of a country, for instance. They have the ability to to do that. They can make certain topics trend- at a moment's notice, and that shapes your entire understanding of who you are as a country, as a society, and what place you have in the world and so on. So that is something that's going to remain. I doubt if he's going to be able to make enormous changes. So that's my perspective. That's what I see. What India, what does it mean for India? It means nothing much for India. Not a lot will change for India. It is an American company. It's owned by an American it is on us soil it is the us law is applicable to it and it's a tool of us geopolitics so india should not expect too much from elon musk's acquisition of twitter what one would like to see is these similar platforms emerge from india itself there are a couple of experiments like ku or whatever but it's a terrible user experience yeah i mean ku has been around for i don't know 2 3 years it's just a shoddy knockoff of Twitter. It's a poor imitation of Twitter. They have not done anything innovative. They've not done anything original. It's just trying to copy Twitter and doing a bad job at it. I I mean, maybe there's a lack of funding. Maybe there's a lack of support. I don't know what it is. I'm saying this from the outside. I'm not inside. But India needs to develop, create its own social media and big data platforms. So that is the way forward in the long run. So we have lots of rich people in India. We have entrepreneurs. We have these billionaires and all. For some reason, we don't see that happening from their side. You can't expect the government to, to do all these things all the time. So that's something I hope will happen in the coming years. But that's where we stand today. So Twitter is still not completely free. The bird is still to a large extent inside the cage. The cage may the parameters of the cage may change but overall it will still remain in some sort of a cage. That's where I see things going. And that is it for me today, for today. So before I end this, I have a couple of questions as always for you. First question, what do you think of the role that Dr. Jayashankar is playing in geopolitics? What do you think of the Jayashankar doctrine that I outlined? Do you agree with it? Do you support it? Do you think it's good for India? Yes or No let me know in the comments below. And secondly, what is your opinion about Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter? Do you think Elon Musk will succeed in transforming Twitter and making it completely free from censorship and politics? Do you think he will succeed? Yes or no? Let me know in the comments below. Thank you very much for watching this and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye.